CrimeCon, the world's number one true crime event, is coming to London in June of 2021. Get inside the mind of serial killers and psychopaths, learn from leading criminologists, hear from the families and survivors, meet your favorite true crime podcasters, immerse yourself in forensic evidence and delve deeper into unsolved crimes. CrimeCon is the ultimate true crime weekend, partnered by Crime and Investigation. And I'm delighted to announce that I will be there all weekend, so come and join me. Quote mens rea when you're buying your ticket for a 10% discount. And as a special bonus, the first 10 people who contact me to let me know that they've bought a ticket using my special code will get a free mens rea t-shirt. Limited tickets are on sale now, and it's a COVID-proof purchase, so there's no need to worry. For more information, visit crimecon.co.uk and use my special code, MENSREA. You're listening to the MENSREA podcast, and this is the story of Cork's missing men. County Cork is located on Ireland's southern coast and considers itself the true capital of Ireland. Its main centre, Cork City, is the second most populous place in Ireland after Dublin, and in the mid-90s, as the population there grew, so too did the problems that come from living in an urban population, drugs, gang feuds and homelessness. Certain parts of the city became associated with various parts of these marginalised groups, and one such place was a three-storey end-of-terrace house on Wellington Terrace in Grattan Hill. It was about a 15-minute walk from the heart of Cork City, and tourist sites like the English Market, and not far at all from the main train station in the city. The large, dreary house with views out over the city and the River Lee below was rented out as a number of low-cost bedsits with shared communal areas. It was cheap and had been well-known and well-used by local men who found themselves in precarious living situations. One of these men was Dennis Patrick O'Driscoll. In 1994, he was 32 years old and was from the nearby Mayfield area of Cork. Mr O'Driscoll was better known as Patch, due to the patch he wore over his eye, which was a result of a car accident he was in when he was 15. Patch had suffered extensive injuries in the crash, causing the loss of his eye and his teeth. He had to have extensive reconstructive surgery due to it and afterwards suffered from epileptic seizures, which he had to take medication for up to four times a day. Patch was unable to work because of the impact of his injuries and was in receipt of disability payments. He had no permanent long-term accommodation of his own and moved between hostels run by the Simon Homeless Charity family members' homes and the bedsits in Wellington Terrace. But three days after Patch moved into Wellington Terrace, he went missing. He was to have gone to his sister's house for dinner on the 18th of December, but he didn't show up. When Patch failed to arrive for Sunday dinner, his sister Jean Bailey began asking around for him, but she was told by a number of people that they'd seen him around. Their mother was very concerned, though. It was in her nature to worry. Jean had tried to soothe her by saying she'd seen Patch because she'd thought that one of the sightings of him had been very convincing. But his family were worried when they couldn't find him. They insisted that there was no way Patch had just gone off. He wasn't like that and wouldn't do something like that. They were told that he had taken a friend's dog for a walk on the night of the 15th of September and had never returned. His sister, Jean Bailey, told the press that her brother was harmless He collected his disability money and gave some to his mother each week. After that, he bought cigarettes and drink with the rest. He could be loud and could roar at the guards, but he wasn't any more trouble than that. But then there was no sign of Patch over Christmas, and his sister Marie rang from Wales that day. Everyone thought that Patch must have been with her, but she'd asked, had his plans changed? He hadn't arrived. 
Mrs. O'Driscoll began to panic at that point, and when Jean discovered that Patch's medication, his dark glasses and his false teeth were all still in the Wellington Terrace flat, she knew that something was terribly wrong. Jean later told Brenda Power of the Sunday Tribune that her brother had been a good-looking man, something he was careful about, but his teeth had also been destroyed in the crash. He would never have abandoned the items that helped him alleviate the visible signs that he had been in such a horrible accident. Patch was reported missing on the 2nd of January 1995. Jean Bailey said she felt her brother was dead and that if he didn't turn up soon, she and her family would be out looking for him themselves. She said they'd dig for him if they had to. She and two brothers, joined by friends, searched some of the train line near to the house in case Patch had drank too much and fallen on the tracks there, but there was no sign of him. They did find an eye patch similar to his in a disused hut, though. Gardie would soon discover that Patch O'Driscoll had won a bike in a local raffle at Christmas a week after he was last seen, which was valued at £400, but he had never come forward to claim it. And then they were told about £180,000, which was due to Patch as part of a compensation settlement for the injuries he had sustained in his car accident in 1979. The compensation was being objected to by the insurer because, unbeknownst to Patch, he had been riding in a stolen vehicle. Because of this legal wrangling over the money, he had no access to the funds, but had been expecting to gain access to it in the next few months after an appeal was settled. To complicate matters further, when Patch O'Driscoll was reported missing by his family, Police realised that two other men from the house appeared to have left suddenly with no word, and they became concerned. Cahill O'Brien was from Wexford. He was 22 years old and had disappeared in April of 1994. Cahill was 5 foot 11, of medium build with long hair that he wore in a ponytail. He occasionally worked as a volunteer with the Simon community. He was a graduate of Waterford Regional Technical College from their computer and business studies course, and in 1994 he had experienced a series of personal problems. He had a falling out with the Simon community, which was down to the fact that he allowed some of the men he had met there to stay with him against the charity's policy. After he disappeared, it was discovered he'd left behind his diary in Wellington Terrace, which recounted the argument he'd had with management at the Simon community and detailed that he'd been upset by it. O'Brien was also frustrated with the length of time he'd been unemployed. Cahill's family at first thought that he had gone to England to travel to the various music festivals over the summer and that he'd be back when things got colder. But he wasn't the sort to disappear without a trace. He had always kept in touch with family, especially if he'd moved. Cahill had also been trying to help another man named Kevin Ball move on from the transient lifestyle he was living so it seemed unlikely that Cahill would suddenly do a 180 and join in. But Kevin Ball had also suddenly gone missing from the house on Wellington Terrace. Kevin was a 42-year-old man from Surrey in England. He and Cahill had formed a friendship, and Mr. Ball had also disappeared in April of 1994. Kevin was described as a bit of a hippie. He was of athletic build and usually wore a knitted hat. He was described as a free spirit. It was thought that at one point he had been in the army, but he'd moved to Ireland from Wales in 1993. He was estranged from a wife and daughter in the UK. When he arrived here, he'd lived in tents or with the Simon community before moving into a bedsit in the house. Cahill and Kevin were thought to have gone missing after an argument with two other men, and the Evening Herald reported that it was thought that the missing men were under the influence of drugs at the time. They also revealed that Patch O'Driscoll had witnessed this alleged argument. Gardie thought there was up to a week between the disappearances of O'Brien and Ball. The two men were noticed to have gone missing after they failed to collect their social welfare payments. Each had picked up their money on time until that point, and they all relied exclusively on those payments to get by. Inquiries were made throughout Ireland, in Britain, and on mainland Europe to see if the three men may have left the country. But this threw up no trace of any of the three men, and it was noted specifically that no new claims had been made by them for welfare payments in any other state. 
Inspector Callanan, a senior guard assigned to the missing persons cases, spoke to the press and commented in relation to the uncollected and unclaimed for social welfare payments. He said, quote, This is all these people had, especially Ball and O'Driscoll. They are people with needs. We cannot be too optimistic. I feel there's somebody out there who knows something about this. End quote. Chief Superintendent Joe Long, who was in charge of the case, said that the three disappearances were of grave concern to the Gardaí. However, the investigation was not one of murder. He said, quote, We are concerned for their safety and are appealing to the public to help us to trace these men. A man known as Dave, and who was thought to have been from Cornwall, also left the flats in mid-January with no apparent explanation and had not been heard of in the months since. There were rumours that the missing men had all fallen victim to some sort of sinister satanic cult that this resident was supposedly a part of. He'd had the number 666 tattooed on his hand. The Sunday Tribune reported that the man had kept a pigeon in a cupboard in his room which left droppings all over the house and that 16 bags of rubbish were removed from the room when he moved out. But Dave was interviewed by the Gardaí before, sensibly, returning to England. And shortly after the investigation began, Cahill O'Brien's father, Seamus, a primary school principal, spoke to Dave from Cornwall on the phone. Mr. O'Brien told the Evening Herald that he believed his son may still be alive and in England somewhere, perhaps having been drawn into the New Age lifestyle. Gardee decided in February of 1995 not to make a thorough examination of the house where the men had all lived together in bedsits, but instead planned to search a wooded area in the Glenmire and Mayfield part of the city where some of the men had stayed in tents at various times. On the 13th of February, BBC Radio 5 had a number of callers to their Night Call Helpline programme who reported having seen a man fitting Pat O'Driscoll's description. He was rather unique looking as he wore an eye patch over his left eye. Three people reported having seen the man in West Manchester since the beginning of that year and Gardee began considering travelling to the UK to follow up on those leads. Similarly, RTE's Crimeline covered the missing persons case the same night and it too received a good response from the public. Gardee, however, said that they urgently needed more information from the public in the search for the men. Specifically, they were looking to speak to anyone who might have seen the men in Cork City or who might have seen anything strange or suspicious in the wooded areas near to it. Gardee said, though they were still considering the notion that the three men had all travelled to the UK, it was concerning to them that none of them had applied for social welfare payments. Seamus O'Brien, Cahill's father, rejected suggestions put forward by the press that his son had been the victim of some sort of serial killer and thought that he would be found on foot of further inquiries into the tips called into the police in the UK and in Ireland. Cahill's family pointed out that O'Brien had been going through a tough time. The 22-year-old had just broken up with his girlfriend, his best friend had moved away and he'd fallen out with the director of the Simon community in Cork. His father Seamus said, I think in a fit of repressed anger he decided to take the boat with Kevin Ball. That's where I believe he is. I formed this opinion based on my own knowledge of his state of mind and my knowledge of him down through the years. End quote. His family said that they were hopeful that Cahill might get in touch around his birthday at the end of February 1995. His father also wanted it known that there was a job waiting for Cahill in Amsterdam for him, if he should choose to come home. But the O'Brien family seemed to be the only ones holding out hope that their loved one was still alive somewhere. By Sunday the 19th of February, Gardee revealed that they now believed the earlier sightings of Pat O'Driscoll were in fact of other men matching his description. They were asking for people with patches to come forward to help them eliminate some of the sightings from their investigations. Police sources told the Sunday Independent that they were now even more convinced that the men had been killed and then buried somewhere on the outskirts of the city. In fact, there were fears that other people who had gone missing in the Cork area might have met the same fate. Jean Bailey, Patch's sister, had been convinced that he was dead since Christmas. He'd left too much behind and it was too out of character for her brother to go off like that, despite his unstable life. She told reporters, quote, I know that there are only five possible places he can be if he's been buried, and if we have to go there with shovels, we will, end quote. 
20 Gardi were working on the missing persons case at that stage, despite the strong suspicion that all three had come to harm and were in fact dead, there was at that stage no positive evidence that this was the case and that they'd been killed. A makeshift den found in a wooded area in the city turned up nothing bar evidence that someone had at some point used the place to sleep. There would be no upgrading of the investigation until the evidence warranted it. On Friday the 24th of February, Gardy stepped up the investigation and began house-to-house searches in the neighbourhood around 9 Wellington Terrace for evidence that might assist them. Their inquiries in Ireland and abroad had given them no new leads to follow, though a Garda spokesperson refused to be drawn on whether this development indicated that the investigation was more serious than a missing persons case. When Mark Smith, a reporter for the Sunday Independent, visited Nine Wellington Terrace in March of 1995, he found the house completely empty. Everyone had moved out. Outside, there were four buzzers. Only one still had a name on it, Fred. But Fred, like everyone else, was long gone. The vulnerable men who had sought shelter in the rundown building were now avoiding it, choosing to sleep rough rather than take up residence in a place where it was thought at least three of their community had vanished from without a trace. Mark Smith also spoke to local people who had known the missing men. A local cab driver described Cahill O'Brien, saying his behaviour was unpredictable and that he appeared to walk around in a daze. Pacho Driscoll was described to Mark Smith as a generous guy who would share his last pound with you. He was very genuine. He was a bit of a loner but friendly. Those Smith spoke to recounted that Patch had been in his local, the Blackrock Castle, on the 16th of December. The bar had been open late that night, and Patch had come in for a few drinks and a game of poker. He was thought to have left around one at last orders, though no one saw him leave. He seemed fine, and didn't mention any trouble or worries. But O'Driscoll's brother Paul told the Sunday Independent that before his disappearance, Patch had told him that he was in fear for his safety because he knew something. His family had begun to believe that this was true and that whatever this information was had been the cause of Patch's disappearance. By March 12th, the Sunday Independent reported that, though the case was still technically one of missing persons, the Gardaí believed two men had beaten O'Brien and Ball to death and then Patch had been killed because he'd found out what had happened. The following Friday, the house at Wellington Terrace was searched for any clues as to the whereabouts of the men. The house was sealed off and forensic teams were called in from headquarters in Dublin to carry out a thorough examination of the flats within, alongside the local team working the case. A Garda spokesperson based out of the incident room in Mayfield Station told the press, quote, The forensic examination is going on. We can't put a time limit on it. We are combing the entire house, not just the flats occupied by the missing men. The forensic search may be widened in the next week or so, end quote. The examination continued over the following weekend. On the 11th of April, the Irish Independent reported that Patrick O'Driscoll's sister Jean had received a threat in the post. It was a letter made very dramatically from newspaper clippings, which spelled out, You're next. Jean reported the incident to the Gardaí, but told the press she knew who had sent it and would not be intimidated. By April, the Sunday World was reporting in a quite definitive manner that their sources had revealed that O'Brien and Ball had been killed by two members of a local family who were involved in crime, mainly in drug dealing, but who also had links with Ser Era, a quasi-paramilitary group. The paper reported that the two missing men had been working for the gang and a disagreement had occurred about money, after which O'Brien and Ball were killed. O'Driscoll had been killed, they said, because he knew too much and as a person suffering with alcohol addiction, there was no way to guarantee he'd keep quiet about it. Paul Williams, writing for the paper, went on to say that it was believed that the three men were buried in a wooded area near to Glanmire. The gang was also reported as having been involved in escalating gun violence in the city in recent years, including the shooting deaths of two men. By the end of April 1995, Patch's family renewed their search efforts in the hopes of either finding Patch or getting some idea of where he may have ended up. They scoured fields and the shoreline around the River Lee in the hopes of finding something. 
but the next search to take place was conducted by the Gardaí. On the 15th of May, they announced to the press that they intended on excavating a back garden of a home in the Mayfield area of the city in relation to the missing men's case, though they would give the press no further details beyond that it was not the house on Wellington Terrace. Matters became quite clear the following morning, though, when Gardy arrived outside number 16's St. Joseph's Park. This was a quiet area, a U-shaped cul-de-sac with a large rectangular green area in its middle planted with mature trees. Number 16 was at the end of a ten-house terrace, whose back garden bordered onto a strip of scrubland and then onto warehouses in an industrial estate. The residents of the house, Mrs. Betty Flannery, a 70-year-old widow, and her son Walter, who was 30 years old and one of four boys in the family, were moved out by the police the night before to facilitate the search. Gardy were careful to stress that those who lived in the house were not suspected of any wrongdoing and said that they believed the end of the garden might have been dug up without Mrs. Flannery and her son's knowledge. Neighbours said Mrs. Flannery was a lovely woman who had had a hard life. Walter was described as quiet. Gardy gave no indication at that time as to what information had led them to begin the dig in that area. A 20-foot-wide scaffolding was also erected in the triangular patch of land that sat between the various terraces of houses and the warehouse buildings behind them. Sections of the rear fence of the 30-foot-long garden were dismantled, with Gardy pulling away the stones, dirt and trees that lined the garden's boundary. The Irish Independent reported that Gardee believed the fact that this garden backed onto waste ground and could be accessed by the warehouse had made it a potential hiding spot for anyone familiar with the area. The Sunday Tribune reported that there had been a recurring bonfire in the empty lot and the two main suspects they'd reported on earlier had been seen to occasionally turn up there where they'd drink and stoke a bonfire. Neighbours also said that they had noticed a foul smell in the area. Pacho O'Driscoll's family said that they were happy to see the Gardaí undertake the search. The examination was to be inch by inch and expected to take up to two weeks to complete. The police said, quote, We have now reached a stage where our line of inquiry has led us to a particular decision. We are focusing on a specific location and are commencing a thorough search. It will involve excavation and it may be protracted, end quote. Within a day, the Gardaí began focusing their efforts on the small land bank between the houses and in particular a 10-foot wide mound of earth that had been dumped there a few years before without any known explanation. There had been other locations on the list of potential places to search, but working off information that was in their possession Gardy decided to prioritise this search in the back garden. According to the Evening Herald, on Tuesday the 16th of May, two other homes in Cork City were being observed in relation to the case. The paper reported that two brothers who were staying in the houses had become the Gardy's main suspects in the case. On the evening of Wednesday the 17th of May, the assistant state pathologist Dr. Margaret Bolster was called to the scene of the dig where she spent 15 minutes. However, Gardy were quick to notify the media that her presence did not indicate that a discovery had been made or was about to be. The pathologist lived nearby and had, quote, expressed a wish to see the site. At that stage, a team of eight Gardy had managed to dig the hole down to about five feet with picks and shovels. All the material coming from the soil and rubble pile was sifted through for anything that might be evidence. Still, after three days of work in the area, nothing of immediate note had been found. Daily news briefings were held for the press with the chief superintendent, Joe Long. On Thursday, the 18th of May, he told reporters that Gardy had been observing this particular site for some time and that they had been assisted in recent times by two people who had helped to further narrow down the search area. On the fourth day of the dig, Gardy brought in a porta cabin, complete with electricity, in order to facilitate the search, further indicating that they expected to be in this small green area for a while. Jean Bailey once again spoke to the press. She appealed for whoever was responsible for what had become of Patch to come forward, saying, quote, I wish that whoever is involved would think of that poor woman who has had to leave her house 
and also think of the families and end all this. Let them put us all out of our misery for once and for all. End quote. By the weekend, the residents of St. Joseph's Park had placed a barricade across the narrow entrance to their cul-de-sac in order to deter members of the public who had begun visiting the area out of curiosity surrounding the dig and the case of the three missing men. These onlookers had arrived despite the fact that nothing could be seen from the road anyway. Gardie indicated that they felt there was a lot more hard work to be done on the site before any next steps in the investigation were contemplated or decided upon. On Saturday the 20th, some materials were sent to Dublin from the site, with the Sunday World reporting that they were thought to have been fragments of bone. However, Gardie would neither confirm nor deny these reports. The Sunday World also noted that the Gardaí were refusing to comment on rumours that another man missing from the Cork area was linked to the other three cases. 24-year-old Frank Blackie McCarthy had gone missing in February of 1993. The two men that were thought to be linked to the current case were also thought to have known a man named Frank Blackie McCarthy, who went missing from his family home in Cork City in February of 1993. McCarthy had also visited the house on Wellington Terrace. The 24-year-old had been in trouble before. He had served a two-year sentence for breaking into and setting fire to a pharmacy. He was also suspected of being a low-level drug dealer. Initially, it was suspected that Blackie may have had a falling out with others in his drug network over money and that this might have led to his death. On the 13th of February 1993, McCarthy had answered a phone call at his parents' house and had left afterwards to meet with the caller. He never returned. Three days later, his family reported him missing to the police after they contacted friends and family in London to see if perhaps Blackie had left, but no one had seen him. It was worrying as it was totally out of character for Frank Jr. not to be in contact with his mother. During the course of the investigation into the three other missing men, the Sunday World reported that the two suspects in that case were known to have had a falling out with Blackie McCarthy in 1992, during which McCarthy was badly beaten. The paper went on to speculate that the young man had disappeared after receiving a phone call from these two brothers, who had asked him to meet them to sort things out. A month after her son went missing, Eileen McCarthy had received a phone call from a man saying that her son was dead. The family had no idea whether or not it was a prank, but their number was not listed in the phone book. Later in 1993, the Sunday World reported that Garda sources had revealed that it was believed Frank McCarthy Jr. had been murdered and buried in an unmarked grave. Later, Eileen would say that she believed that this was likely to be true. The Gardaí had put in a good effort to try and locate Blackie, but they had no indication that he had left the country or was living elsewhere. On the weekend of the 21st of May, the first weekend of the dig in St. Joseph's Park, Veronica Guerin revealed in the Sunday Independent that Gardie had been acting on information from a 16-year-old who had presented himself to a Garda station accompanied by his father 11 days before. While there, he was interviewed for six hours and told the police that he had witnessed the fatal attack on Patch O'Driscoll and named two men as being involved. They were brothers and were known to teenagers in the area as the Crazies. Detectives told Guerin that the statement had provided a crucial link in the case between the chief suspects and the site that was being excavated. They had been aware of a ditch that had been dug in the scrubland and fresh soil that had appeared in the area. A further site was identified in a wooded area in Glanmire and Veronica Guerin reported that a dig in that spot was also set to commence within days. Garda sources told the reporter that they had been reluctant to begin searches anywhere without clear evidence to link anything that might be found with the two suspects in the case. Guerin went on to describe the two men thought to have been involved. She said that they had become involved in petty crime at a young age and were known drinkers. Both men were of stocky build and worked occasionally on building sites but neither held down jobs long. They preferred drinking on the streets rather than in pubs, and that's how they become known to the teens who were drinking in Glenmire Woods. When the two began mixing excessive alcohol consumption with psychedelic substances, it was thought that they had become violent. 
The brothers were also known to be friends with Patch O'Driscoll and had met O'Brien and Ball while visiting Patch in the house on Wellington Terrace. Guerin's article went on to suggest that those two men had been killed by the brothers after an argument, and Garda sources had told the reporter that they believed the brothers had gotten a taste for the taking of life and were worried that other deaths might follow. The two men were described as weird by their neighbours and both had lengthy criminal records, mainly for assault and theft. Their poor behaviour started early and neighbours from their childhood home on the north side of the city recalled that they were often up to no good. Both ended up expelled from school and became notorious for stealing cars and motorbikes, setting fires and violent assaults during burglaries. The Sunday Tribune doorstepped one of the men before the Garda dig began and he denied having had anything to do with the men's deaths. He said he'd known the three missing men but had never done anything to them besides try to help them. The man told Fergal Keane that O'Brien was confused and depressed at the time of his disappearance and that Ball had simply just gone off at the same time. He also said he believed Patch had had an accident somewhere. It had been nothing to do with him, he insisted. He said he was sick of all the stories going on regarding his involvement in the case of the missing men. And just as Veronica Guerin had written, Gardy had indeed received reports during the weekend of the 21st that a number of men were seen digging in an area of interest near to Cork City. Gardy began their own excavation in Mayfield on Tuesday, extending from Lottamore to the Glenmire Wood. Forensic testing was carried out on hair, nails, and a blood-stained shirt that were found on the second day of that operation. There was a foul smell at the site as well as evidence of the digging that had occurred, but no official spokesperson would confirm these details. Finally, early on Saturday the 27th, two men were arrested in relation to the investigation into the missing men and were brought to separate Garda stations to be questioned. Later that evening, a 35-year-old man Fred Flannery was charged with the murder of Patch O'Driscoll in a special sitting of the district court and was remanded in custody. The second man that had been held was released after questioning. The following weekend, on the 28th of May, Paul Williams, writing for the Sunday World, related that the two main suspects who had been under surveillance by Gardy had apparently tricked Gardy in order to further hide their crimes. Williams reported that it was alleged that the men had approached Gardy who were monitoring activity near to a dig site in Mayfield and told them if the guards decided to dig a ditch at the back of the house in St. Joseph's Park, they'd be dead. At the time, there was a search ongoing in the Glanmire Woods, but after this threat, Gardy decided to focus their efforts on the plot of land between the houses and the industrial estate. Williams went on to say that this shift of focus by the Gardy had allowed the men to evade their surveillance and move the body of Pacho Driscoll and reinter him elsewhere, away from where Gardy had been searching. After the arrest, searches were briefly halted and then resumed. The police also appealed for anyone in the wider Cork City area to report any suspicious behaviour, particularly disturbed ground that the public might come across. Mountain rescue teams from Cork and Kerry were brought in with dogs to help search through heavy undergrowth near the dig sites. On Tuesday the 30th of May, a mechanical digger was brought into the site at the back of St. Joseph's Park, with Gardy telling the press that they had been unable to do this until the dig had reached a certain depth. Meanwhile, senior Gardy were denying that Garda cutbacks had hindered the team's ability to conduct the searches saying that overtime had not been a concern during the investigation and that specialist teams and expertise had been called in when required. Hundreds attended Fred Flannery's brief second appearance at the district court where he was once again remanded in custody. On June 11th, the Sunday Tribune reported that Gardy had developed a new theory in which Flannery had killed Kevin Ball and Cahill O'Brien in April of 1994, after a fight that broke out when the men were drinking. The sources said that this sequence of events was based on a number of witness statements taken during the course of their investigation. The bodies, they thought, had been dumped somewhere between Mayfield and Glenmire and had afterwards been burned. Patch had then moved into Wellington Terrace himself and was murdered shortly thereafter. 
It was believed that O'Driscoll had begun to tell people what had happened and that the story of the fight and the deaths quickly spread across the city. Then, in the early morning of Saturday the 24th of June, the second man who had been brought in for questioning in relation to the missing men had been abducted and was attacked and beaten by a number of people in the city. Fergal Keane, reporting for the Sunday Tribune, said that the man had been dragged from an outdoor party in Lottebeg. He was brought away and beaten at about half past six in the morning after partying and drinking all night. He was brought to the hospital where he was treated for cuts and bruises before being released. Gardy said they believed the attack was related to the missing men's case. In October of 1995, the second man would be arrested once more in relation to the case. He was brought in for questioning after Gardy received new information in relation to Pacho Driscoll, and he was questioned at Mayfield Garda Station for 12 hours on the 6th of October. Meanwhile, Fred Flannery also had proceedings going ahead in the High Court to attempt to secure bail. That application would finally be dismissed in November of 1995. The book of evidence in the case of Fred Flannery was delivered in September of 1995. Nine months later, on Monday the 10th of June 1996, jury selection began in the case in the Central Criminal Court, sitting in the Green Street Courthouse before Mr Justice Barr. Mr Kevin Haas, senior counsel, was prosecuting on behalf of the Director of Public Prosecutions, with Mr Patrick McEntee, senior counsel, defending. As if a murder trial wasn't dramatic enough, Flannery was rushed at that day while handcuffed to a prison officer on the steps of the court by a man wielding a knife. Flannery was unhurt as the officer had pulled him to safety. The man, reported by the Evening Herald as brother-in-law of Pacho Driscoll, was immediately detained and spent a few hours in the nearby Bridewell station before being released. Guarded divers were brought in to search the Liffey as an unidentified object had been thrown into the river after the attack, and Gardie began preparing a file to send to the DPP on the matter. Six men and six women had been sworn to the jury on Monday morning, but as the trial was due to begin at 2pm, the court was informed that due to work commitments, one of the jurors was now unavailable. Mr Justice Barr said the juror should have informed the court attendants of the conflict before being sworn. After a new juror was sworn in to replace them on Tuesday morning, one of the other original members of the jury told the court that they were also now not in a position to proceed. Mr Justice Barr said the trial was jinxed. He didn't know how right he would end up being. A new jury was slated to be sworn the next week. And so on Tuesday the 18th of June, the trial of Fred Flannery finally began. Counsel appearing on behalf of the DPP said that the state would be presenting evidence that Patrick O'Driscoll had disappeared in December of 1994 because he'd been killed by the defendant before being dismembered and buried in a field. However, Mr O'Driscoll's body had not been found. Noel O'Driscoll, Patch's brother, was one of the first witnesses on the stand. He described how Patch had been injured as a teen and that because of his epilepsy he wasn't able to work. The court was told that Patch knew he needed to take his medication regularly to avoid having seizures, which would see him collapse, become unconscious, and leave him with no memory of the events afterwards. Noel went on to say that despite his troubles, Patch was in regular contact with his family, and if he didn't talk to Patch at least once a week, then someone else in the family would have. Patch had gone missing for just over a week one time before, but the family had been able to track him down. They had actually done so through the defendant, who had known where Patch was staying. When no one had heard from Patch over Christmas, Noel said he had gone to the local homeless hostels and a few pubs that his brother frequented, but Patch hadn't been seen there either. When he was unable to locate Patch, Noel went to the Gardie and reported him missing on the 2nd of January 1995. The court was told that Patch was known to stay in the Wellington Terrace house with Fred Flannery, who was also a resident there, before taking a flat there of his own. If Patch wasn't there, he often stayed with Fred's brother John, or with his own family, at Noel's house, his parents, or with his sister Jean. That December, Patch had called another sister, Marie, who lived in Wales. He often went to stay with her and received treatment in a nearby hospital. Marie gave evidence in the case and told the court that Patch had rang her 
sometime between the 10th and 15th of December, asking if he could stay with her over Christmas and then stay on for his treatment, which was due to take place the following week. She said that he couldn't come for the holiday, but he was welcome after, and Patch said he would ring her when he knew when he was to arrive in Wales, but he'd never called and had never shown up. While on the stand, she recounted one other visit that Patch had made to her house, where he had suffered from some bad seizure episodes. He'd been brought to the hospital, but she had to go and pick him up when they called her and said that Patch was abusive and paranoid and had tried to set a fire in the toilet. Patch was admitted to a psychiatric facility after that, where he was diagnosed with epileptic confusion and received inpatient care. Marie agreed with the defence counsel that Patch would have fallen over if he had suffered a seizure while standing up. On Wednesday the 19th, the third day of the trial, another of Patch's family members gave evidence. His brother-in-law, Stuart Bailey, Jean's husband, said he had last seen Patch in Patch's flat in Wellington Terrace on the evening of the 14th of December, 1994. They'd made plans for Patch to call to the Bailey's house for dinner that weekend, on Sunday the 18th but Patch had not shown up and Stuart said that this was very unusual to him at the time. Stuart and his wife Jean had called by Patrick's flat that night to see what had become of him, but Patch wasn't there. Instead, they ran into Fred Flannery, who, when he was told Patch had missed his appointment at his sister's, told them he'd last seen Patch the morning of the previous Thursday. Stewart next heard from Fred Flannery on the 28th of December, when Flannery had called him and suggested that they should go out looking for Patch. He'd gone and met with Fred, and the two men had searched along a train line, a hut and an old disused building, as well as inquiring in some pubs after Patch. But they found nothing. Stuart Bailey also said that although he had no specific memory of it, he felt it was likely that he was aware that Patch was due to head to Wales around that time for his treatment. Evidence was also heard that day from the teenaged boy who had made the statement to Gardee, leading to dig sites being established in Cork City to look for evidence or remains in the case. He was 17-year-old Michael Flannery Jr. and had attended the Garda station with his father, Michael Flannery. Fred's brother. Michael Jr. confirmed that he was now 17 years old and had left school with no qualification, but had completed a FOSS course in mechanics. However, he told the court he'd been involved in a car accident and had since been unable to work. The 17-year-old confirmed that he recognised the defendant as his uncle and went on to say that he'd often visited Fred's flat in Wellington Terrace. He also knew some of the other men who had lived there and said he knew Patch O'Driscoll. Michael said the last time he'd seen Patch was, quote-unquote, a good bit before Christmas. Michael testified that about a month later he had gone to Wellington Terrace in the evening time and was in Mr O'Driscoll's flat with his uncle and another man where they'd had tea and smoked some joints together. Fred and some other men had left and gone upstairs the witness presumed to Fred's own flat, with a bow saw, a Stanley knife and some blankets. Shortly after, 30 minutes at most, a woman had called to the house and Fred came down to let her in. And 10 minutes after that, Fred had asked the woman if she would get rid of some rubbish for him by dumping it somewhere. Then, Michael said, Fred had brought him up to his flat and told him that he was after killing Patch O'Driscoll. Then, Michael told the court that his uncle had shown him parts of Mr O'Driscoll's body. There had been a hand and a leg with a sock on it. Both body parts were hidden in a cupboard in the flat, and Fred had also pointed out an old coal bag behind a chair and said that more of Mr O'Driscoll's remains were in there, before going on to describe how he had dismembered Mr O'Driscoll into at least ten parts. The young man said he did not see the contents of the coal bag. Michael Flannery Jr. testified that Fred told him O'Driscoll had been killed two or three weeks before this and that he killed Patch by hitting him once or twice with a hammer and then choking him by putting a rope around his neck and holding it there for up to 15 minutes. After these startling revelations, Fred had asked Michael to help him put the bag into the back of a car, which he had done, along with another backpack-type bag. The female visitor to the house then drove the car to another house where the bags were taken out and put near to a windowsill. 
The following day, Fred had come by Michael's house and Michael Jr. said he'd gone with his uncle on a motorbike to the back garden of the house that they were at the day before. Another man was there. And then he and Fred had taken the bike to Vienna Woods, near to Glenmire. Michael Flannery Jr. continued his evidence the next day. He told the court that he'd heard Fred and another man say that O'Driscoll's body was buried in a pathway in a field near to Cork City and that he'd heard them say they planned to dig the body up and bring O'Driscoll to another field a short distance away, the one that they were standing in at the time. The teenager had travelled to that spot near to Vienna Woods Hotel with Fred. Fred had even gone and fetched a shovel in anticipation of digging a fresh grave. But Michael described how the other man had objected to this plan, saying that this field, the secondary site, was too wet. Fred and the other man had then arranged to meet the following day at around 6pm in Mayfield, but Michael had not gone to this meeting. A number of weeks later, Michael was at another man's house and Fred had arrived. He had a pillbox with him and had sat it on the mantelpiece. Then Fred told the other man, be a good boy because Patch is watching you. Fred said that the box contained Patch O'Driscoll's eye. Michael Jr. went on to say that he'd been scared. Quote, I was going to run out of it, but I was afraid Fred would do it to me, end quote. Michael Jr. recalled for the court that he had returned to the field sometime later in the company of his father and the gardie and had pointed out the area the men had been discussing. There was a patch of disturbed earth nearby. On cross-examination by Patrick McEntee, the witness went on to say that he had told two friends about what he'd seen in Fred's flat in Wellington Terrace. Michael Jr. recounted that he'd been in treatment for drugs in March of 1995 and had decided while he was there that he wanted to tell someone what he had seen and heard, but he'd had a hard time in the treatment centre and had called his father to come and get him. When his dad arrived, he told him a bit of what he'd seen, that Fred had killed Patch and that the witness had helped to move the body. Michael told Mr. McEntee that at the time he'd been contemplating killing himself. Michael Flannery Jr. acknowledged on cross-examination that he'd been drinking heavily when these events had occurred, and that he'd told Gardy he wasn't sure that the body parts he'd seen were in fact real, though he acknowledged that the word human was used in his statements. Then, Michael said he'd been told by the Gardy to tell the court that what he'd seen were human remains. That afternoon, as the case adjourned for the day and counsel began to leave the courtroom, Paddy McEntee was approached by someone who handed documents to him. They were Garda documents, which related to the testimony that had been heard that afternoon, including additional statements made by Michael Flannery Jr., which called into question the reliability of his account of the events he had described. It emerged that he had given a number of versions of what had occurred. These new statements, combined with the evidence that Michael Jr. had given on cross-examination, were startling. The following day, when court resumed, Paddy McEntee made an application for the case to be adjourned and informed the court that he had been handed these documents and needed time to review them. It also emerged that this was not the first instance of documents being furnished to the defence late. The solicitor in the case, Frank Buttermer, had previously sought assurances from the chief state solicitor's office that there had been full disclosure of all documents in the case in December of 1995. This happened after it was discovered that there were a number of statements from people who told Gardy they'd seen Patch O'Driscoll alive and well after the time the state was to allege he'd been killed by the defendant. After this letter, what was described by McEntee as a very substantial number of statements were turned over by the Gardee. The defence actually received the documents before the Chief State Solicitor's Office and the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions. McEntee went to lengths to stress this fact to Mr Justice Barr and that the lawyers for the state itself had also been totally unaware that the Gardee had not handed over everything at that time. In fact, on foot of that, Mr. Hall, who was acting for the DPP, made further inquiries and turned up even more documents that should have been handed over. But for the fact that the trial had been delayed a number of times, the proceedings would have begun in circumstances where neither the defence nor the prosecution had access to all the relevant materials. Mr. McEntee told the court that he had a concern that an effort had been made to suppress the statements to bolster the credibility of a critical witness in the case. Mr Justice Barr was furious. 
He said he had never come across anything like this in all his years in practice or on the bench, where the prosecuting guardie had caused such a serious problem for the case. The judge told the jury that this failure to disclose had been a grievous problem. He continued, quote, It's not just highly unsatisfactory, but outrageous that prosecuting guardie should have had to have documents literally dragged out of them, end quote. He ordered that any outstanding documents should be handed over to the defence and prosecution and that the investigating guardie in the case should have no further part in deciding what information might be relevant to the case. For their part, the guardie had told the prosecuting counsel that it was human error that the documents had not been handed over. Mr Justice Barr then granted an adjournment until the following Tuesday. When everyone had gathered again on Tuesday the 25th, Mr Justice Barr was informed that the day before, yet more documents had been disclosed by the investigating guardie to counsel. This time, it was statements made by associates of Michael Flannery Jr., who he'd told about what he alleged to have seen with his uncle. Some of these witness statements recounted that Flannery Jr. had told them he'd been high on acid when he'd told the story. The teen had admitted to the court that he'd used marijuana, alcohol and Valium, known as Roach's Fives, but he had denied that he used LSD or anything hallucinogenic like mushrooms. The judge said he expected a senior Garda officer to appear and explain to the court how it was that so many documents had not been handed over and to confirm that everything had indeed at that point been disclosed. An application by the defence was made at that time asking for the judge to direct the jury to return a not guilty verdict in the case, arguing that Flannery had been denied his right to a fair trial, and the jury were informed of this too. The following day, without the jury present, Superintendent Patrick Brennan told the court that relevant documents had been discovered after being misfiled and that this had happened due to human error. However, the superintendent acknowledged that he had been aware that these documents existed. Mr Justice Barr concluded that there had been a, quote, conscious and deliberate policy, probably orchestrated by Superintendent Brennan and at least one of his investigating officers, to subvert the course of justice in the trial, end quote. Justice Barr did not accept the explanation that Superintendent Brennan had given and further decided that the investigating guardie had coached Michael Flannery Jr. on how to answer questions while he was giving evidence, and further that guardie had failed to interview a certain person in connection with the investigation. The judge went on to say that he was faced with three choices, to continue on with the trial after an adjournment, to order a mistrial and have the proceedings heard afresh, or to direct the jury to enter a not guilty verdict. Kevin Hall for the DPP requested that an adjournment or a mistrial be granted. After consideration, Mr Justice Barr concluded that the trial was so tainted it could not continue. Even worse, he said, it appeared that the main witness in the trial, the one that had been described by the state as a key witness, had been coached, and this was not something that could be rectified. This, in addition to the, quote, bordering on the absurd drip-feeding of documents by the guardie, end quote, meant that the trial had been irrevocably tainted. Because of this, Mr Justice Bard directed the jury that Fred Flannery should be found not guilty. Because of what had occurred during the Garda investigation and preparation for the trial, Flannery could never appear in court facing this murder charge again. Mr Justice Barr then dismissed the jury and the defendant. Fred Flannery left the court without making a statement and was driven away by his solicitor. Jean Bailey told the Sunday Independent after the collapse of the trial that she and her family now feared for their safety, saying, quote, We are going to ask the guardie for protection. I am afraid for myself and my children, end quote. Within days after the collapse of the trial, a meeting was held between the Justice Minister and the Garda Commissioner to discuss what had occurred in the case, and an internal Garda investigation had begun even before the trial's end. The General Secretary of the Garda Representative Association said in relation to the case, quote, I am afraid that terrible damage will be done to the force and to the public's perception of the force by this episode, end quote. There was much conversation about holding Gardee accountable 
and that the preservation of the justice system was paramount, but Gardy were less than pleased at the comments that had been made by Mr Justice Barr in relation to their investigation of the case. Just three weeks after Fred Flannery walked free from the Green Street Courthouse in Dublin City Centre, there was a development in the case. On Friday the 19th of July 1996, Gardy got a call from a man who had been out walking his dog along a makeshift path through the hundred acres of wooded land near to Lotterbeg House. The Jack Russell dog had been particularly interested in the rough spot for a few days and had barked at it and pulled his leash. The walker told some of his friends about his dog's odd reaction and after a short while, he decided to contact the police too. The spot was less than a mile from the one that had been excavated by Gardy a year earlier, where hair, fingernails and a check shirt had been found. When Gardy arrived and began to dig once again, they found two black plastic bags in a shallow grave containing badly decomposed remains in an area that had been thoroughly searched in the investigation into the three men's disappearances. The body was just two foot below the surface. Assistant state pathologist Margaret Bolster was called in as the scene was cordoned off around the grisly find. The body had been dismembered and the site was covered in rubbish left over from drinking sessions of teenagers from the Mayfield area. The families of the three missing men, Cahill O'Brien, Kevin Hall and Patch O'Driscoll, were contacted by police that evening and began awaiting news as to whether it was their loved one who had been found, while forensic testing was carried out on the remains. Because of his severe facial injuries from his car accident, it was clear to Gardee that they had found Patch O'Driscoll but they warned families that it would take up to three weeks for a DNA analysis and dental and medical records to be compared to the remains in order to confirm them conclusively. Jean Bailey, Patch O'Driscoll's sister, immediately made the trek to the site, but she wasn't allowed up to the spot where it was thought her brother was buried. In the meantime, Gardy brought in sonar scanners in order to examine the land around the shallow grave in the hopes that they might be able to discover more. On the 8th of August 1996, the O'Driscoll family were called to the Garda station at Mayfield, where they were informed that the body discovered in Lotta Beg was, in fact, their missing brother, Patch. Gardy also confirmed to the press the same night that they had completed their examination of the land around the makeshift grave and had found nothing to indicate that there might be any further burials nearby. On Friday the 16th of August, Patch O'Driscoll's family were finally able to have a funeral for him. A requiem mass was held at the Holy Cross Church in Mahon, where his seven siblings and his parents attended, along with a gathering of friends and neighbours. Parish priest Fachna O'Neill told the gathered crowd that the O'Driscoll family had been through two years of heartbreak, not knowing what had happened to Patch, and they lived in uncertainty and anxiety during that time. Their worst fears had now been confirmed, but there were still unanswered questions. Patch O'Driscoll was then laid to rest in the nearby St. Michael's Cemetery. In June of 1997, Ken O'Shea, writing for the Sunday World, reported that people living near to a secluded forest, near to Mallow in County Cork, believed that there may be further burials related to the case there. A number of people spoke to the Sunday World, saying that the prime suspect in the murder had been seen in the area regularly and had approached a local farmer whose land bordered the area to rent a farmhouse from him. But the farmer felt that there was some unsavoury reason for the man wanting to rent the rundown building. It was not habitable and he felt that there was no legitimate reason someone would want to rent the place. Despite being refused, the farmer saw the man in the area a number of times over the next week, at night time. The landowner had gone to the local Gardee when the murder investigation was ongoing in Cork City to report this and was assured that the information would be followed up on. Some officers arrived to ask questions, but the woods weren't searched and nothing came of it. A Garda in the Mallow area, who had initially been approached with the information but had since retired, told O'Shea, quote, I don't want to paint my former colleagues in a bad light, but I think they've neglected to follow up a very strong lead here. We know that an established accomplice of the suspect was living near the woods and we were keeping an eye on him. I can understand why these local people believe that there might be bodies in the woods and I think a proper search operation is definitely justified, end quote. 
Gardy, involved in the murder investigation, told the paper that the information had been received and followed up on, and gave no indication that a search in that particular area was to occur. However, the following week, the Sunday World continued its coverage of the case, reporting that on foot of public pressure, the Gardi were preparing to mount a search in the area. But nothing was found. The internal investigation into the collapse of the trial was completed and made public a month later in June of 1997. Unsurprisingly, despite what Mr Justice Barr had indicated at Flannery's trial the year before, the report concluded that Gardi had done nothing wrong. Instead, this report concluded the failings in disclosure to both the defence and the state had resulted from pressure put on the Gardaí by multiple applications to the court by the defence team to complete the book of evidence. A senior Garda source told the Sunday Independent that the investigating team had been told to prepare a book of evidence before the Garda file had been completed. In normal circumstances, the Garda file would be completed first before the book of evidence But, despite complaints to the state solicitor in Cork that the files weren't ready, they were told to complete the book anyway. The internal investigation found that it was due to this reversal of normal procedure that the vital documents and statements had been misfiled and not included in disclosure. In September of 1998, it was reported that the O'Driscoll family were bringing an action to force the payout of Patch's compensation claim. Initially, there was no way for them to make this claim as Patch's body had not been found and they were not able to produce a death certificate. Once Patch's remains were recovered, the family then had to wait for the inquest in the case to take place. As this was obviously a case of foul play, the coroner's court were reluctant to hold an early inquest because it's common practice for this to happen after legal proceedings have been held. But the trial in relation to Patch's death had already fallen apart by that stage. The inquest was finally held in September of 1998. The body discovered in the woods near Lottabeg were confirmed by specialist doctors who had treated Patrick Driscoll for his injuries. However, at autopsy it was impossible to determine the exact cause of Patch's death and the coroner recommended an open verdict be entered. The jury agreed. Fred Flannery was discovered dead on Friday the 18th of May 2003 at 44 years of age. His partner became concerned when he left their house and hadn't returned for a meal. He was found hanging from a rafter in an outhouse building on their rented farm property. She tried to revive him, but it was no use. Fred left no note and had given no indication of his intention to harm himself. It emerged that after the directed verdict in his trial for murder, Flannery had only come to the attention of the Gardaí for a public intoxication incident and driving without insurance. Jean Bailey said on hearing the news that she felt she could now sleep for the first time in nine years. The inquest into Flannery's death was held in October of that year, and afterwards Cahill O'Brien's father, Seamus, spoke once again to the press. He told the Wexford people that he had spent most of the last decade travelling at the weekends to Cork from his home in Wexford, and searching through fields and woodlands for his son, but he's had nothing to go on and no indication of where to start. Mr. O'Brien had visited Flannery after his arrest and pleaded with the man to give some indication of what had happened to Cahill and where he might be found in order for the family to get some notion of closure, but Seamus said it seemed that Flannery was laughing at him and it was clear that he had no intention of revealing the information that the family were so desperate to know. And so, with Flannery's death, came the disappointment for the O'Brien family that he would never reveal what had happened to Cahill. Seamus said, quote, All I can hope for now is that someday someone who knows something will come forward. That is what is keeping us going at the moment, end quote. In 2018, Superintendent Mick Cummins of Mayfield Garda Station issued a renewed appeal looking for information in relation to the two still-missing men, asking for people to contact Mayfield Garda Station on 021 4558510 if they knew anything at all about what had become of the men. The appeal was also issued on RTE's Crime Call program. Gardie received a number of calls after the program aired, which the superintendent told the press would be followed up on. But the investigations into the missing Cork men are still ongoing. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Mens Rea Pod or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. 
This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Joe, Chris Swain Randolph, Eva Panama, Jane Fiona, Helena Kearns, Lisanne Dutois, Rachel Eskridge, Lindsay Noon, Linda Cardinal, Sheila Morris, and Alexandra and Clinton who have upped their pledges. Thanks so much to everyone who has signed up and to everyone who continues to support the show. It is hugely important to be able to keep Men's Rea going and along with those warm fuzzies of helping out, you get ad-free and bonus episodes and nifty merch. So do check it out at patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week. Don't forget to check out BetterHelp to keep up with your self-care. Make sure to download Best Fiends, my favorite mobile puzzle game, and spend a fun evening solving crime with unsolved case files. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so head to the show notes and check out these awesome products and services. Our theme music is Quinsong The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. I'm Matt Johnson, Boots on the Ground reporter and host of True Crime Deadline, the award-winning podcast back for season two. Hi, I'm Carrie Rossman, and I'm the daughter of the BTK serial killer. My name is Chris Pedretti, and I am a survivor of the Golden State Killer. Each week, we dive into a new crime and give you new details you won't hear anywhere else. They're saying this is a suicide. That's bullshit. What is your message to the person responsible? I hope that you know that we're going to catch you. Season two has everything from the Tiger King case. I don't know if Carol Baskin pulled the trigger or committed the the murder of Don Lewis. To the one case I have never really opened up about. Until now, I was witness to a state execution of a convicted killer. And Lawrence Caldwell had it in his mind that he was going to kill this person. He just wanted to know what it was like. So if you like true crime, hit subscribe and join me each week. Buckle up, investigators. You're on Deadline. More information about the podcast, visit truecrimedeadline.com. <laughs>